This morning's first reading is taken from the book of Malachi, chapter 3. It can be found in the Old Testament section of the Church Bible on page 904, beginning at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. I will rebuke the lotus for you, so that it will not destroy the produce of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not be barren, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will count you happy, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You have spoken a harsh words against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What do we profit by keeping his command or by going about as mourners before the Lord of hosts? Now we count the arrogant happy. Evildoers not only prosper, but when they put God to the test, they escape. Then those who revered the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord took note and listened, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who revered the Lord and thought on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, my special possession on the day when I act, and I will spare them as parents spare their children who serve them. Then once more you shall see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The second reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, beginning at verse 31. It can be found in the New Testament section of the Church Bible on page 27. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, 
Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me some clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's start with a prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your constant and unchanging love for us. Thank you for the word of truth that you have placed in us. Please open our hearts and our mind this morning to your word and to your leading. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, a number of years ago, when uh, Claire and I were still living in London, and we were driving in the centre of London, or I was driving to pick something up with Claire beside me, and unfortunately, I got a little lost and ended up in a cul-de-sac right by Covent Garden. And there were loads of shoppers around, and I thought, not to, not to worry, I'll just do a simple um, three-point turn, and I'll be out of there in a jiffy. Um, I got plenty of room to do it, even though there was parked cars on, on both sides of the, the cul-de-sac. So I had a quick look behind me to make sure I wasn't going to hit any pedestrians, and then I reversed at a normal pace. Now, I didn't bother to keep looking over my shoulder because I could trust my senses, and I knew that I would hear the beep from the bumper um, as I needed to. Well, I, I kept reversing 
Now, I either didn't listen to or didn't hear um, the beeps. And as a result, I pathetically reversed directly into a parked car um, straight behind me. And um, it had a nice crunching noise, you know, that kind of damaging kind of sound for anybody who's, who's ever done it. It's my only crash in 27 years of driving. And it's just what I wanted to do in the middle of London with hundreds of shoppers all looking at me amazed at my absolute stupidity. So I promptly, of course, got out of the car and it just so happened that there was a police officer stood directly there on the, on the pavement. And um, he just gave me a piece of paper and a pen and said, you'll want to use, leave your details. And I said, of course, that's exactly what I'm intending to do. Um, and so I left all my details on the, on the windscreen of that, that car I bashed into. And to top it all off, that evening when the, the guy phoned me, the, the guy who owned the car that I'd bashed into, gave me a call to get my insurance details, he was disappointed because I had left my full name on the windscreen. My name is Will. My full name is Mr. William Haig. And I'd left that. And... The, <laughs> They'd thought it was going to be the really interesting politician on the end of the phone, so they were doubly disappointed when they, when they heard from me. Although, to be absolutely fair, they were fantastic about it. Now, what can we learn from this sorry episode? There are many things about my driving, but the one I want to point out this morning is that I foolishly did not heed the warning from the parking sensors on my car. I didn't keep looking behind me. I didn't see the need to put my foot on the brake, and I couldn't see the danger. And so what did I do? I crashed. And in the same way, let me suggest to you that what we see from the Malachi passage this morning is that the Israelites, too, refused to see, to look over their shoulder. They refused to hear the warning beeps and refuse to see the impending danger of their actions. They're clearly reversing, they're clearly causing damage, and they are clearly about to crash. And so, as a result, the relationship between God and his people was not all it could be. Sin was in their lives, it was rife, and their metaphorical reversing is pointed out to them. And I do think it's striking in this passage and through Malachi that every time their wrongdoing is pointed out to them, they contradict it or question it. They don't see it. They just don't to see, seem to see the danger that they're in, that they're heading for um, a crash and that they need to stop and repent. And as Mark unpacked for us at the start of this Malachi series, God spoke into this situation and he said through Malachi, I have loved you. And he says to them again in this passage this morning, I do not change. Return to me and I will return to you. So that message to repent, to return to him, I think is a message for us here this morning too. And so I'm going to look at this passage in four brief parts. And if you're able, please feel free to follow in the, in the church Bibles in front of you. I think it's on page 904 if you, if you wish, Malachi 3. I'm going to look at these four things. Firstly, our unchanging loving God. Secondly, turning robbery into overflowing blessing. Thirdly, the curse redeemed by Christ. And fourth of all, our listening God rewards. So firstly, our unchanging, loving God. We can see in the book of Malachi that the people have accused God of lacking consistency. They say, you're not consistent, you're not reliable, and we just don't trust 
your love. They're unhappy with the relationship. We've seen this. We saw this in chapter 1 when they offered polluted sacrifices at the altar. We see it in chapter 2 where the the priests have become unfaithful. We see it at the start of chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. They're defrauding workers, taking advantage of, of widows and orphans. And they just don't see their sin. They don't accept God's word. And yet God's patience is endless. He says to them, verse 6, through Malachi the messenger, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. It's significant that God addresses them as children of Jacob. We've heard earlier in the series of Malachi about this. God is reminding them that they are descendants of Jacob. Where God gave his covenant love to Jacob, he showed that he chose Jacob instead of his older brother Esau. He's reminding them that I have a covenant love with you. And then verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God's love, he's saying, my love for you is constant, it's faithful, it's forgiving, it's everlasting. It might be challenging, but it's eternally hopeful. You return to me, I'll return to you, and we can see that he is constantly, unchangingly wanting to restore that relationship with his people. And I wondered as I studied this this week whether that simple but profound message is one that I certainly needed to, but some of us might just need to hear this morning, that whatever we feel, however, however badly we've messed up, however inconsistent we might have been, whether we think, well, I've crashed in a big way or, or little things have made me trust God less and less like we seem to see with the Israelites here, maybe the truth we need to see is that our Father God is unchanging. He has chosen to love each one of us here this morning, and it's real. As he said in chapter 1, we see Malachi say, I have loved you. And we simply need to repent, trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and return to our Father in heaven. As Roman 8 says, as I paraphrase, paraphrase, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have an unchanging, loving God. Second point, turning robbery into overflowing blessing. But even with God's endless patience that we've seen here, we can see how how far the Israelites have fallen with this question. They say, how shall we return? Now, we could think to ourselves, well, that might be a genuine question, and they've got a deep desire for reconciliation. But in the light of the message of Malachi as a whole, it's more likely to be actually... We aren't aware that we've done anything wrong. We, we haven't turned away from you. So we, we don't know that we need to return to you. They haven't understood the warning sounds, the signs, the beeps. They don't know how far they are from God and that they are crashing. And I think this suspicion is, is reinforced by the next word, the words of God and their words. If you look at verse 8, Will anyone rob God, yet you are robbing me? And the people reply, How are we robbing you. I think their words of surprise and ignorance show how far they are away from God. Now I think that robbing God is a dramatic concept. Almost when I was thinking through it this week, it sounded almost a bit ridiculous. But as I was looking through, the Bible is clear that we do rob God when we don't give him what he deserves. His unchanging and constant love deserves our trust, our love, 
our obedience, our worship, our sacrifice. He deserves it because he made us, because he's redeemed us in Christ. But specifically, how were they robbing God? Look at verse 8. In your tithes and offerings. Verse 9. The whole nation of you. So the tithes and the offerings that Malachi is speaking to here was the way in which they provided financial support for the temple, the, for the priests and the Levites, but also the services of the temple, and also for the poor and the needy in the community. So robbing the temple, robbing the poor and needy was robbing God. And they didn't want to financially give what was needed. They certainly weren't giving with the right heart. And he challenges them to put him to the test. Look at it, verse 10. He says, test me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Look at verse 12. Then all nations will count you happy, for you will be a land of delight. And as I studied this, it reminded me of of Jesus' words in, in Matthew 6, where he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 21 in Matthew. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I do think from my own own walk, journey of faith, that it's a good rule of thumb that what our money goes after, what it's spent on, is a signal of what our heart goes after. For me, lots of caffeine and running trainers. But seriously, I do think Jesus cares more than anything about what our heart is going after. And money is a, is a really great litmus test of that. I've heard it said that a wallet or a purse is often the last thing to be converted in our lives. And only we will know if that's, if that's true for us. Jesus was certainly clear that we should financially give in our lives. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, so when you give... Jesus assumed that his disciples would give. And the Apostle Paul, in his letters, taught the churches to give money regularly. I love the way Paul encouraged the Corinthian church to sow generously, give cheerfully. And he actually links that giving to their spiritual maturity and growth. He says, it will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So there is something about giving that prizes our characters from the grip of materialism and money. But at the same time, I think it's really important to say here that God walks with all of us and with those who are financially struggling or in debt. So if anyone's listening to this feeling guilty, um, I think it's really important to remember that God knows the position we're in. He knows our situation is full of compassion and stands with us. And it's always better to seek help if we're in financial debt or, or difficulty. And so I think the point for us from this is I don't think we can leave the issue of money outside of the back door of our lives and just ignore it, because it, it will do us harm if we ignore it, like the Israelites are ignoring it here. And it reminded me of a shoe incident I, I had when we were, we were living in Peckham. I used to wear a, a pair of brown smart shoes that I loved, some leather shoes. They, they weren't the best, but I loved them. They were really comfortable. And um, I once got them really muddy, And um, I came into the house with them, and Claire said, oh, my goodness, you're going to have to clean those, get them out. So I put them outside um, the back door. Claire said, don't leave them, make sure you clean them. I said, of course, I'm just going to do something else first. Well, I forgot. And then the next evening, I looked outside, and one of my shoes was in the middle of the garden. I got up to that shoe, and all the laces had been gnawed, and one of the, the back heels had actually been chewed off the shoe. 
And Claire gave me that knowing look. And um, I did point out to her that she couldn't have foreseen that my shoe was going to be eaten by a fox. But I did think that in a similar way, ignoring our giving and what we spend our, our money on could leave us with a bad outcome if we ignore it and leave it outside the back door. Whereas if we give and think about how we're going to give and we do it cheerfully, Paul is clear that it produces many blessings. As it says in this passage, an overflowing blessing. And I don't think this is prosperity gospel, to give and you will personally get. I think the Bible's clear that when we give, we bless others by supplying for their needs. We help to plant the seed of the gospel. It helps us to grow in righteousness, to transform our character. We store up treasures in heaven that last, and it leads to thanksgiving. As Paul says to the Corinthians, your great generosity will produce thanksgiving to God. This not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. It is wonderful. It's better to give than to receive. And we'll reap generously if we sow generously. The Israelites needed to hear this. So thirdly, the third point, the curse redeemed by Christ. What was the result of robbing God? Look at verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The curse is the opposite of his blessing. God chose Abraham to bless him and to bless the great nation that would be his descendants. But great blessing brings great responsibility. And so we see here that the curse of God comes on his people when they break God's covenant, when they distrust his word, when they disobey his commands, when they reject his love, when they distrust his promises. And so the seriousness of this curse can be seen very clearly when we realize that the only way the curse of God on his people could finally be lifted was by the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. It says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And I was struck when I read this and the Matthew passage that God's holiness and rejection of all sin is real. God's final just judgment is real. As it said in Matthew 25, the Son of Man comes in his glory and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. A loving, righteous, holy God cannot allow injustice and sin to go unnoticed. And so that's why Malachi in this passage wants them to see the seriousness of situ their situation. They can't go on as they are. Judgment is coming. And so he's calling them out to the reality of their situations with these signals and these beeps and these warnings. He's calling them to repentance. Return to me and I'll return to you. And so the same is truth, true for us. The mighty truth, of course, is that wonderful, precious salvation is open to all who put their faith in the gospel of Christ. God has broken this curse by sending his only son Jesus to live a righteous life and to die innocently on a cross for our sin. But we see no repentance here. In this passage, if you look at verses 13 to 15, how they've spoken harsh words against the Lord. Look at verse 14. They are saying, it's vain to serve God. What's the point? What have I got out of all of this? 
Have the sacrifices been worthwhile? What reward do I have for my goodness and my service to God? Verse 14, what do we profit? And then look at verse 15. Look at how the evildoers prosper. They seem to escape any wrath. I think these words show that they're fundamentally focused on themselves. What am I getting from this relationship? They aren't thinking about the kingdom of God, of sacrifice. And they also show that they're envying other people, the evildoers. They're openly and successfully arrogant and successful. They're doing really well. The grass is always greener on the, on the other side. And it did make me reflect how comparing ourselves with others will always leave us either discontented or arrogant. It's an unhealthy approach to life and always makes us unhappy because we can choose to compare ourselves to people who seem to be doing really well in the world's view of things, and that's certainly what the Israelites are doing, and that will make us discontented. But we can choose to compare ourselves to people who seem to be doing less well than us, and that can make us arrogant. And God instead calls us to focus on our relationship with, with him. And so I was thinking this week that the, the best thing that we can do is spend some time each day praising God for the goodness that he's given us, praising him for the good gifts that he's given us, whether they be great or, or small. And it reminded me of when I was in Johannesburg um, about a decade ago now with work. And um, I'll never forget it. I was in um, Zonderwater Correctional Facility, which is a, a maximum security prison in the center of Johannesburg. And it has about five times the number of prisoners in there than it, than it was designed for. And I had um, the privilege of joining and supporting a workshop um, for a group of murderers in the, in the prison. And I was sat next to Ollie, who was a guy in his 40s, um, and he'd killed four people, and he was serving a term of 226 years, so he had absolutely um, no hope of release. Um, and he didn't know I was a Christian, and yet from the moment I came in, he talked to me about his story, about how he'd killed these four people, and he'd done it, and it was his fault, but how in the prison he'd given his life to Christ, and that as part of his daily worship, he had what he called a gratitude stone, and every night, the stone reminded him to give thanks to God for seven things. And I was looking and seeing this prison thinking, how on earth could you give thanks for seven separate things each day? And he told me that he was able to give thanks every night because of Jesus and because of the, the things he was giving him and the things he saw because of his faith. And then before I left the prison, I had an amazing couple of hours with Ollie. Before I left the prison, he gave me a stone which he says he gave to anybody he ever met from outside the, uh, the prison. Um, and he gave it me to take away as my gratitude stone. And a decade later, I still have it sat beside um, my bed. Um, and so for me, my, my Christian brother, Ollie, and this gratitude stone is a reminder to me that the saving work of Jesus is for everybody, it's for all. If we return to him, he will return to us. But also that focusing on thanksgiving and praise is always better for our souls than comparing our lot with others. Ollie could have compared himself to almost anybody and think that the, he had nothing, and yet he was one of the happiest men I've ever met. The Israelites needed to hear this message, and that's why Malachi was giving it them in the way that he was in this passage. And so, as we come into land now and finish... We can see in this fourth point here that our listening God rewards. 
we see that Malachi ends on this brighter note. It wasn't the whole of the nation that had turned away from God. Within the nation, there's a faithful remnant. If you look in verse 16, those who revered the Lord. And we see how God speaks about these people in verse 17. He says, they shall be mine, my special possession on the day when I act. This group revere the Lord. They speak together about the good things of God. They encourage each other. They challenge each other. They love each other. And God, what does he do? He listens to them. I love it. God listens to them. Attentively, lovingly, seriously, he listens to them and listens to us. The Lord remembers those who are faithful. They are in his book of remembrance. So that's the wonderful nature of our Father in heaven. He loves us. He listens to us. He calls us to him in all of life's mess. And through his son Jesus, he receives us. He forgives us. He cares about us intimately. Our God is unchanging. Amen.